Amen. Thanks, Tono Morning, everyone. Why don't you grab a Bible or a phone and open it up to uh, Acts chapter 2. If you missed the start of the series that we did in the book of Acts, which is, uh, if you're visiting, that's what we're busy doing. We're going to spend about 40 weeks looking at the book of Acts. Uh, I know that might feel like a long time, but there's a lot in the book of Acts, and so uh, we're not going to leave anything out. And so we're in week three. If you missed the first couple of weeks, you can find those messages on the website somewhere or on uh, podcasting thingies um, somewhere. But we are dealing with Acts chapter 2 this morning. It's the account uh, of Pentecost. If I was more organized, maybe if I was more led by the Spirit, uh, we would have coordinated this. So this sermon actually landed up on Pentecost. If you're not, if, if you're oblivious to what's happening in the Christian world, Pentecost is actually two weeks ago. Um, so I couldn't quite get the timing right, but it's okay. Um, every day is Pentecost. Now that we've had Pentecost, it's like a Christian joke, which obviously no one gets, but uh, this is fine. I'm going to go leave. I'm going to go to a Pentecostal church. Pentecostal church would have found that hilarious. They would have been like amening, waving their flags. You clowns all just staring at me. So... Let's read Acts 2, and then I'm going to pray for you. I mean, pray for us, and uh, let's see what uh, the Lord wants to teach us this morning. Acts 2, we're going to do from verse 1 to 13 this morning. When the day of Pentecost had arrived, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like that of a violent rushing wind came from heaven, and it filled the whole house where they were staying. They saw tongues like flames of fire that separated and rested on each one of them. Then they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in different tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were Jews staying in Jerusalem, devout people from every nation under heaven. When the sound occurred, a crowd came together and was confused because Each one heard them speaking in his own language. They were astounded and amazed, saying, Look, aren't these all who are speaking Galileans? How is it that each of us can hear them in our own native tongue? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, those who live in Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts, Cretans and Arabs, We hear them declaring the magnificent acts of God in our own tongues. They were all astounded and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But some sneered and said, They're drunk on new wine. Let's pray together. Father, as we again come to your word and, and come under it. We, we want to quieten our hearts and ask that you would ready our hearts and to receive from you. We all come um, to this place this morning in, in, in different places, hearts in different conditions, facing different things going on in our lives, having experienced different weeks, some struggling, some thriving. And yet collectively this morning we have one need and that's to meet with the living God. We have a need to hear from you. We have a need to encounter you. We have a 
a need for the Holy Spirit to teach us and to reveal and to move amongst us this morning. And we thank you, Father, that you long to do this. That when we, whenever we stop and pause and pray and ask you to, to speak to us and move amongst us, we're not, we're not trying to overcome your reluctance. It's not like we're begging you to do something you don't want to do. You are more willing to move amongst us, to love us, to reveal yourself, to pursue us this morning, that we are um, for it to happen. And so we, and we know it's not difficult for you. Nothing is difficult for you. So we thank you that it's easy for you to do that, to presence yourself amongst us and to love us and to change us, to strengthen us, and to refresh us. So we pray now that through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, your word would come alive amongst us in our hearing. We would be transformed as we meet with you again this morning. Help us now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. There's, there's a whole bunch of different ways we can approach this. And as I said in the book of Acts, what we're going to do is we're going to repeat a whole bunch of different themes, uh, things. Some of the themes in Acts repeat again and again and again. And so if you feel like on one week uh, you wish you heard something about um, something, um, hopefully we're going to get there. If, I've, if you feel like I'm missing it out completely, um, come and let me know. But just want to let you know that because we've got like 40 weeks, some of the stuff I'm leaving and we're going to do it in a more appropriate week. And so... Um, sometimes when this passage gets preached or mentioned or whatever else, um, people, particularly if they've grown up in a slightly conservative church, like this gives you like the cold sweats. Like I read that passage, you, I mentioned Pentecost, and you're kind of like, I chose to come to church on the wrong day. I should be at home watching the comrades. He's like, so hell's going to break loose. There's going to be people lying on the floor speaking in tongues. You know, I don't want to be part of this. I just want to assure you and just calm, calm the farm here. Like that's not... Um, I think what you see here, it's not, we're not, like I said last week, we're not trying to recreate uh, Pentecost, but there is nervousness on the one end of the spectrum and there's massive expectation and excitement around the events of Pentecost. And Lord willing, uh, what we're going to look at this morning uh, brings uh, a helpful balance between, I think, what actually happened, what we should um read into the events of what happened at Pentecost and what it ongoingly means for us today. Uh, like I said, when we started Acts, we're not looking at a history lesson. We're not like opening up Acts every week and saying, oh, that's so interesting. Look what happened all those years ago. That's great for them. We do, in some senses, want to live in the ongoing effects of Pentecost, in the ongoing effects of the kingdom of God moving in the world. So we're not just looking at a history lesson, but we're also not trying to gather each week and wind ourselves up and bring our flags and try and recreate a kind of Pentecost. If any of you have any tips and tricks on how to get flames of fire to land on each of our heads this morning, come and let me know. I couldn't find any um, shortcuts and stuff. You know, there's things that are outside of our control. As you see here in the book of Acts, there's things that you can't remanufacture, no, no matter how much a longing you may have to do that. Um, I'll say all of that by introduction to get us to the point that what I want us to what I want us to do, the approach I want us to take is the same approach that happened on the day of Pentecost as all these, I'm going to call them crazy things are happening because they are wild. I mean, there's wild stuff that's happening. You don't see it often repeated. It's okay to call it a bit wild and crazy, even though it happens in the Bible. And the people, the people watching all of this happening to the disciples, remember there's 120 people. If you missed last week, there's 120 people gathered together in the upper room. They're waiting 
for the Holy Spirit who Jesus said he would send. They gather to pray. They're expectant. He says, don't go and do anything. Wait until you receive power. And then you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Don't go try anything. Wait. You're going to be clothed with power. They're praying 10 days after Jesus gives them that instruction. On the festival of Pentecost, there's an outpouring of the Holy Spirit on them. And the people watching this, what, is the word, what do they say? What does this mean? That's what we have recorded for Luke. Uh, Luke's very good at recording things. Yeah, that's, that's, the, that's the cry of the people. What does this mean? Uh, there's a wind. There's a big wind. I mean, it's quite lucky that we had an earthquake. I'm, I hope nothing bad happened anywhere. It wasn't a big one, was it? I mean, it woke me up. Did anyone sleep through it? Come be on. Your? Your? Look at all the oaks with fancy beds here, huh? The, the restonic crowd here amongst us. The, the high rollers. That's lacquer. Now we know. There'll be a spe- special meeting for you lot in the front here. We've got a giving campaign that we want to just launch. Um, it's great to have things like that happen because in Joburg, it's quite boring. We don't have any natural disaster kind of threats around the place. We don't have tornadoes, hurricanes, all those things. A little shake in the middle of the night was quite lacquer. A um, little bit of excitement. And like I said, I hope nothing bad happened. Um, to people but you see here in the book of acts wind blows and a whole crowd gather because the wind is so significant there's 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 observable manifestations and movements of god happening on the day of pentecost that people are like what on earth is going on here they hear wind then they we don't know if they can see the tongues of fire we're going to get to that bit about the fire descending on the people, or what appears to be tongues of fire descending on the people. But the natural events that are happening are so, so significant that they cause a, an interested group of people to gather. It's a big group of people because we find out later that 3,000 of them uh, end up becoming Christians, and maybe not all of them responded. So there's a big crowd of people who, who see natural phenomenon and are called together, and this is what they're asking. What on earth does this mean? There's a wind that's not normal, it's significant enough to get them together, and they see all of these people speaking in their own language. Now they, they're from all over the place. I mean, I read through that complicated list of names. When you do a deep dive on that, that is a very, uh, fairly broad area for that time of the world. Uh, there's a whole point to that, which we're going to get to later. But they, they're listening, and they're like, all these people, these are Galileans, but we can hear them s- speaking like preaching the gospel, declaring the mysteries of God in our own language. What on earth is going on here? What does this mean? What does this mean? And so that's the approach I want to take this morning. I'll say, what does this mean? What does Pentecost mean? What does Pentecost uh, mean? And I, wanna, I just want to say um, that my understanding, my interpretation of Pentecost, our church's understanding of this is, is what we call an open-handed issue. In the Bible, you have closed-handed issues and open-handed issues. Closed-handed issues, this is like a complete sidebar thing. Closed-handed issues would be like, is Jesus Christ Lord? Is Jesus Christ the Son of God? Uh, is there only one way to get like into relationship with God, be reconciled to the Father? Is it through Jesus? Those are like closed-handed issues. Like We're not open to debate those things. Like If you don't agree with those things, you need to come around to agreeing with those things. Or go somewhere else. Like we're not we're not having a discussion. 
I'm not meeting with you for coffee to have my views changed on that. Like, we're not budging. They're closed-handed issues, not just for our church, but for the church of God, I think. And then there's open-handed issues. Like, can you baptize adults or can you baptize infants? Here, we baptize adults because that's what really the scriptures say. But there's good Christians who we're going to be in heaven with who baptize kids. It's okay. We're all on the same team. You know, we're not going to like shun them forever. I think they're wrong, but it's fine. We'll, we'll figure it out on the other side. You know, maybe we're wrong. Who knows? It's an open-handed issue. When it comes to the things of the Holy Spirit, this is an open-handed kind of issue. Some of you, I know, you come from very conservative-ish roots. Some of you come from more charismatic kind of vibes, and you're a bit disappointed we don't have flags available um, today. You're kind of, kind of hoping for the tongues of fire kind of vibes. It's okay. It's like an open-handed issue. That's fine. You're disappointed no one speaks in tongues from the front. Some of you are like, thank you, God, I come to this church because no one speaks in tongues from the stage. Open-handed issues. There are open-handed issues. We can agree to have different interpretations around even the events of what Pentecost means. But I want us to answer this question, what does this mean? And I've got five points this morning. I actually numbered the points. Normally I get up here and I say, I've got a few points. I don't know how many there are. There are five. Um, They're not numbered in my notes, but I did count them. There are five. So... Um, just shout out if I miss one. The first one is this. This is what we see uh, in this passage. We see, and I've got, I'm going to use the term the helper. You remember in John in John 14, from verse 16 on, it's Jesus teaching John 14 all the way through John 16. He's teaching about the Holy Spirit, and he talks about the helper, another counselor coming. He says, I'm going to go and I'm going to send another counselor, the, the paraclete, the paracletos, the one who, who's going to come alongside you. And so I'm going to use the term the helper. I love referring to the Holy Spirit as the helper because that's what the Bible refers to him as. That's the name that Jesus gives the Holy Spirit as the helper. So the first point is what we see here. What does this mean is that the people receive a helper from heaven. A helper from heaven. Have a look in verse 2. Where does the wind come from? The wind comes from heaven. It's, It's possible to miss that. It's possible to miss that. It's like it's a west wind. It's a north wind. You know, we go on holiday to Cape Town uh, every every December. That's like our go-to family destination. Our, um, Dan's got into surfing. And the last couple of years, we've been at the beach there. And suddenly, we're now very invested in which direction the wind's blowing. Because if the wind blows, I'm going to sound like a proper volley here. Like if it blows offshore, I think it's good. Yeah, it's good for surfing if it blows onshore. Uh, thanks, Cotty. Hello, Cotty. Nice to see you, but uh, he's visiting. Uh, if the wind blows offshore, it's good. It makes the waves stand up. If it blows onshore, it makes it all flat kind of thing. It's so like we're watching the weather, wind guru, like, you know, where's the wind coming from? This wind is not from north, south, east, or west. It says it comes from heaven. Luke specifically says this is not a normal wind we're talking about. This wind comes from heaven now he's not just talking about the wind he's talking about the helper is coming from heaven that's luke's language to saying the holy spirit is not coming from somewhere down here this is a heaven sent helper this is a heaven sent helper why is this really important i've been so helped by a guy called paul tripp if you haven't heard of paul tripp or read anything by him you should change your ways and just find something. He's written stuff on parenting, on marriage, on the gospel. He's a massively, massively helpful guy. He's also got this super cool mustache, if you like, guys who are really trendy um, and have weird facial hair. 
his greater gift, his greater gift to the body of Christ is helping me understand. He has this phrase that says, your greatest problem lies within you. Your greatest problem lies within you. Our culture would say what? Our culture would tell you what? Where are your greatest problems? Out there. That's the message our culture would tell you. That the greatest problems you have are outside. And the greatest help is where? Inside. That if you can unlock your inner you, you can unleash your greatness. I don't know why I always do these weird things. Like you can, you can do your thing, you can channel this and you can unleash. Then you have within you everything that you need to be the most fabulous, wonderful you, to overcome the external struggles, to bloody, bloody, blonde. You can go and hear a motivational speaker. The rise and the abundance of self-help books, self-help courses, self-help material centers around what? That you have within you what you need to help yourself. It's a self-help thing. You don't need external help. You already have it. You just need to unlock it. And your unlocking of your internal abilities will help you combat your external problems. That's what the message of the culture around us says. The message of the Bible says is that is that within you is the greatest problem. And what you need is not something inside. You need an external helper to help you with your major problems that reside inside. It's not the other way around. It's not that the problems lie outside and you lean on internal help. It's that the problems lie internally and you reliant on external help. And so here you see in Pentecost, a helper comes from heaven. The Holy Spirit is a heaven-sent helper. The one who comes alongside, I already mentioned it, it's worth reading it again. Jesus' teaching in John 14. 16 and 17, I will ask the Father and he will give you another counselor, similar, another, so he's the same as Jesus, they're not on different teams, to be with you forever. He is the spirit of truth. The world is unable to receive him because it doesn't see him or know him. But you do know him because he remains with you and he will be in you. You will receive an external helper from heaven who will be within you. This is the first reminder that we receive from Pentecost is that we have a helper that comes from heaven to help us with the greatest difficulties that reside inside of us. We need external help. The second thing that we see is that this is a helper for all believers. The Holy Spirit is a helper for all believers. Have a look again at verses 3 and 4. They saw tongues like flames of fire that separated and rested on each one of them. Then they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in different tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Why am I making a big deal of this? Because I think the Bible makes a big deal of it. It doesn't say that the Spirit of God came to rest upon the disciples, upon the 12 apostles. You remember last week, now they've got 12 again, done with Judas, Matthias gets in. Now they're back to 12 again. It doesn't say that the Holy Spirit comes on the leaders, it says that the Holy Spirit descends on each one of them and they are all filled with the Holy Spirit. Fire in the Bible is a sign of the presence of God. It's a sign of the presence of God. A great 
study for you to do in your own time is to go uh, and read all the way from Genesis and do a word study on fire and see where fire appears all the way throughout the scriptures and see the importance and the significance of fire. When tongues of fire or what appears to be tongues of fire appear over their heads, it's not, it's not inconsequential what, what we're seeing here. There is vivid imagery and truth that Luke is wanting us to get. Well, I'll give you a couple of examples. Uh, Moses, God calls Moses, his prophet, to lead his people. How does he call Moses? With a burning bush. With a burning bush. Fire. Fire. Hey, this is holy ground where you're standing. Take your shoes off. He appears to him through fire again and again with Moses. He appears um, to Israel through fire, his presence of fire on the mountain. He leads the people of Israel out of Egypt and in the wilderness by what? Fire. They're like, follow the fire. That's the presence of God. Follow the fire. When the fire stops, you stop. When the fire goes, you go. That was hard work. That's how he led them around. Elijah, God's prophet, he has a show off, stand off with the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. Don't know if you know the story. They're like teasing each other. Well, he's teasing them. Saying, okay, well, we're going to build an, an altar. We're going to have a little competition here. You call out to your God, and I'll call out to my God. And whoever sends the fire will show himself to be the true God. The presence of our God will fall. What happens? They, they try and try and they cut themselves and they do, they do everything they can, incantation-wise, to get Baal to do something. Obviously, Baal's not going to do anything. He's not a God. They worship demons. The true and living God sends fire and it consumes not just the sacrifice, but everything. The stones, the works are all gone. Fire falls down and end up, the prophets of Baal end up getting slaughtered. Because the presence of God comes down in fire. Solomon dedicates the temple in Second Chronicles. You can go and read it in chapter 7. He prays and he dedicates the temple that he built. Remember, David wanted to build it. God said, no, no, you're not going to build it. My son Solomon will build it. Your son Solomon will build it. Solomon built the temple, a place for God's presence to be. He prays a prayer of dedication in Second Chronicles 7 verse 1. As he ends his prayer, kind of he hangs up the phone with an amen kind of thing. What happens? Fire. Fire falls and fills the place. Fire, fire, fire. We could keep going for a while. I think you get the picture that fire is a sign of the presence of God. And now what do you see happening? You see tongues of fire resting on the heads of every single believer. You don't see a fire coming. You see tongues of fire resting on each one of them. Every single believer now has the presence of the Holy Spirit over them and in them. Elvis has left the building. Paul says when he's preaching, we're going to get to this when we get to Acts 17. It's part of his sermon. He says, the God who made the world and everything in it he is Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in shrines made by hands, by human hands. God does not live in a building. God doesn't live in something that's made by men anymore. He did come to a temple. He filled it with his presence, the fire, and there was a fire. You can go and read this, that all the way back from the tabernacle days, 
there was a, God gave them instructions and said, this is how I want you to do things. There is to be a fire there. And you're never, ever to let that fire go out. That was one of the priest's, priest's jobs. Make sure this fire never, ever dies because this fire is a sign of my presence. And some of the priests die in the Old Testament because they fiddle around and they explore with other kinds of fire. So no, 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 don't do your own thing. You just tend to the proper fire. That's the presence of God. Fires left the building. Now there's no longer an ongoing fire in the temple. There is a fire that has come to rest on every single believer. How do you know that you're a Christian? You've received the Holy Spirit. How do you know you're a Christian? You've received the Holy Spirit. I don't believe in a two-class strategy, a two-tier kind of believerism. You can believe in Jesus. You don't get the Holy Spirit. Then you wait. We have a special class. We teach you, and then you receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I believe. I believe in the outpouring of the Spirit. I believe in the reality. I believe in the gifts. I believe in something that sounds and looks maybe a lot like the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I believe in that stuff because I think you see it in the Scriptures. I think you see it in church history. But do you get a Christian who has not got the Holy Spirit? No, you don't. You don't get those things. So if you're a believer and you're terrified, like, do I have the Holy Spirit? We're going to talk about that a bit later. I think there are people who go to church who don't have the Holy Spirit because they're not Christians. That might be you. There's no such thing as a Christian who doesn't have the Holy Spirit, like you're waiting. Like how on earth are you going to live the Christian life without the Holy Spirit? You can't. You can't call Jesus Lord without the Holy Spirit. That's what the Bible says. So I don't want you sitting here panicking this morning thinking, I haven't felt any fire. You know, the strongest wind I felt was in Cape Town. Nothing else happened. You know, like, am I a Christian? They're like, yeah, you are. If you believe and you call Jesus Lord, You're a Christian and you have the Holy Spirit. Are you living in the fullness of what it means? Maybe not. We'll explore that a little bit today and in the coming weeks. It's possible to have the Holy Spirit and not live in the fullness of what that means. But I don't want you sitting here thinking there's other kinds of Christians and they're like the Holy Spirit crowd and then there's me. I believe in the Father, Son, and the Holy Bible. There's no such thing as that. You either believe in the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit and you receive Him with joy or you're not a Christian. I know that might sound strong, but I found that in this book. I don't think I'm making it up. There's a helper who comes to all people. The third one is, there's a helper who comes to all cultures. There's a helper who comes to all cultures. Isn't this amazing what happens? And I just want to clarify, we are going to talk and we're going to do a detailed exploration on what the gift of of speaking in tongues is all about. All right? What you see here on Pentecost is not speaking in tongues. In terms of what you see in 1 Corinthians 14, I know some of you don't believe in speaking in tongues, just bear with me. In 1 Corinthians 14, you see something else, okay? You see a different thing, uh, which would be traditionally considered by like Pentecostal charismatic people as the speaking in tongues. What you see in Acts 2 is not speaking in tongues. Because in 1 Corinthians 14, Paul says they're not going to understand is you don't even understand what you're saying in the gift of speaking in tongues. In Acts 2, everyone understands. They hear, hey, you're speaking, you know, our, our language. You know what I mean? Most of these, you, I hear Spanish. I hear German. I hear Swahili. You know, oh, wow. Hey, but you're not from, you're from Galilee. 
And how on earth did you learn to speak my language? They hear like human languages declaring the marvelous acts of God on Pentecost. They're not hearing what you see in 1 Corinthians 14, the gift of tongues. Why is this important? Why is this important? Why is it important that it happens at Pentecost? Because Pentecost, a lot of people have said, is in some ways a reversal of what happens at the Tower of Babel. The Tower of Babel, there's this rising up of human independence. We're going to build a tower. We don't need God. We're sorted. God confuses their language, and then you end up with a whole bunch of languages around the world. God confounds their human independence. And in Acts 2, you see a, a, an outpouring of the Spirit and the gospel going out into all those languages so that people can know him and become dependent on him, not independent of him like they were trying to be at Babel. It's not a hill I'm going to die on, that connection to Babel. What I want to say, and this is, I think, the hill you need to die on when it comes to Acts 2, is that the gospel and the Holy Spirit is for every culture. God doesn't speak in Hebrew on the day of Pentecost. God does not speak in American. Is that the thing? I know there's Americans here. Just guys, forgive us. We, uh, I've been, there's not a swing at Americans, but you know, somebody said like when America sneezes, the world catches a cold. Um, it's true that a lot of the world is influenced by America. A lot of Christianity is influenced by America. Is America, are Americans God's favorite culture? Yeah, it depends who you ask, I suppose. Go online, you might find that like, you know, it, America is God's chosen nation. There's a whole bunch of people really pushing that kind of thing, like Christian nationalism, like God almost has favorite nations. Yeah, it's not true, guys. It's not true. That's what Pentecost teaches us, that God is the God of the nations. And every language gets a shout-out kind of thing at the time. God gives all these different tongues to show that every culture, God wants to reach the people. Every culture has to be conformed to the gospel. The gospel invades every culture. You don't have a Christian culture. You have Christ and the Holy Spirit that invade and redeem every culture. There are wonderful things about every culture. There are wonder and there are ungodly things about every culture. And the call of the gospel is to go into every culture and redeem and reject anything that is against Christ. Well, you redeem and celebrate the things that are from God and you reject the things that aren't. But every culture, the, the, the glory of the gospel is what you see in Revelation, that before the throne of heaven, there's what? Just Afrikaans people, just American, no, no, every tribe, tongue, and nation, everyone's there. And I think it's D.A. Carson who says this, he was asked, what language are we, we going to speak in heaven? And I know there's some people who think it's Afrikaans, it's not. They think Afrikaans is the Imosotol, it's not. There's so many people I know. My kids don't even can't speak Afrikaans. They're going to be lost in heaven. It's not Afrikaans. It's not French, as beautiful as that sounds. D.A. Carson says this when he was asked the question, what language are we going to speak in heaven? He says, we're going to all speak every language. We're going to speak every language and we're all going to understand each other. Because what it shows is the beauty of the diversity, the creative heart of God in every culture. So don't stress about it. You can speak whatever language you want and everyone will understand each other because it displays the multifaceted beauty of God because languages sound different. And there's beauty even in the sound and the expressions. Afrikaans is the most beautifully expressive language in some ways. Doesn't, doesn't mean we need it for heaven. I lost my train of thought there kind of thing. 
Yeah, everyone was like, what is he going to say next? I didn't know what I was going to say next. That was the problem. <laughs> the, the, the beauty of the gospel is this, that, that, that Christianity doesn't come into a culture to flatten it. Christianity doesn't come into a culture to flatten it, to conform it to one, one culture. I don't want to make too much of it, but if you think of other world religions, like, like a big world religion like Islam, um, you cannot find a legitimate copy of the Quran that's not in Arabic. It's not considered a Quran if it's not in Arabic. It's, a, it's like an explanation of the Quran if it's not in Arabic. It has to be in Arabic to be the Quran. The Bible has been translated, has been, and is continuously being translated into every tongue because the gospel is able to invade every culture and redeem and celebrate diversity. We're not trying to flatten cultures into one monoculture. We're trying to invade, have the gospel invade and, and permeate and redeem every culture because that's the heart of God. He's the God of the nations. He's the God of the peoples of the world. And it's beautiful that we're going to see the glory of that in eternity. And you see it on Pentecost. You don't see the Spirit given to one group. You see the Spirit given and proclaimed to every group. And it's a really big deal. Fourth thing you see on Pentecost is that the Helper makes you a missionary. The Helper makes you a missionary. What are the people hearing? They're hearing the people declaring the magnificent acts of God. Your translation might be something different to that, uh, the mighty works of God, whatever. The word is magnificent or mighty. They, see, they hear the people declaring what? This is super important. The people are not running around shouting, my hair is on fire. I received the Spirit. They're not waffling off other nonsense. How cool is this? We're special. Look what we have. Look what you don't have. It's not the, the vibe of Pentecost. What do you hear them? The Spirit descends upon them and what comes out of their mouth? The magnificent acts of God declared in the tongues of the people that are there, in the languages of the people that are there. When the Holy Spirit gets a hold of your life to fill you and to strengthen you and to empower you, it's for the purpose of you living as a missionary so that your life and your words declare the magnificent acts of God. It's not, it's not just so that we can gather together in holy huddles, have lovely, warm, fuzzy feelings, have churches that do weird things behind closed doors. It's so that God would empower a people who would be so moved by him, so captivated by him, so empowered by him that they would declare the magnificent acts of God, wherever God sends. The Holy Spirit gets a hold of your life and fills you so that you can live as a missionary. And I'm not meaning that you then need to get on a plane and go somewhere. I think for some people that would be easier for you to live as a missionary if you got on a plane and went to a foreign people group where no one knew you. You could start afresh, full of the fire. For some of you it would be way tougher tomorrow to go into your workplace to have conversations with your friends to be bold with your family to declare the mighty works of god that's way tougher sometimes than getting on a plane and starting afresh with a whole bunch of new people because there's history and there's reputation and there's fear of rejection and what the holy spirit does 
gets a hold of your heart and empowers you and makes you a missionary. And those missionaries declare the magnificent acts of God. They're not obsessed about the presence of the Spirit and all that stuff. He's just there and he is in, he is causing them to be a fulfillment of what Jesus promised. What did he say? You're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Jesus' words are a fulfillment of another promise and prophecy. Wind the clock all the way back to Abraham. What does God say to Abraham? Abraham, I'm calling you and I'm sending you. And I'm, you, out of you, out of you will become a great nation. And you will be what? You will be great. And that will be the end of it. And you're going to love it. No, no, no. That's not how it goes. He says, you'll be a great nation. And you, through you, you'll bless the nations. Through you, you will be a blessing to the nations. Guys, there's a, there's a large part um, degree to which you're sitting here this morning because the nations have been blessed through others who were obedient to the fulfillment of this. Most of you aren't Jewish. Most of you are Gentiles. You know, Pam gets a free pass on this. She comes from Jewish stock. Maybe a couple of other you are Jewish with Jewish background. Most of you are Gentiles. You're not naturally descendants of the covenant promises of God. We have been grafted in. We have received what was not promised to us. We've been brought into this. We are recipients of the fulfillment of the blessing to the nations. That hasn't ended. There's still more. So my ongoing question, every time we run into this, is what are you doing? What are you doing to live as a missionary? What are you living? How are you living to bless the nations? The Spirit is given to you. Not so that you would feel warm and fuzzies, but that you would live as a Spirit-empowered missionary, declaring the magnificence of God in your culture and to the nations of the earth. The last point is this. We have a helper who influences. We have a helper who influences. What's the reaction of the crowd when they see these guys? These oaks are on their ear. They are drunk. These oaks have been drinking. And we'll look at Peter's sermon next time. He says, listen, it's 9 o'clock in the morning. You know? It's not 12 o'clock anywhere kind of vibes. It's like, these oaks, I promise you, they haven't been drinking. Promises. It's only 9 in the morning. They're not, they're not drunk as you suppose. And then he explains what has happened to them. But that's the observation of the crowd is what? These guys are drunk. Why did they say that? Well, basic Bible observation is because they may have been acting like they were drunk. What happens when you're drunk? You surrender control to alcohol and you live and act under its influence. When you get drunk, you surrender control and you act under influence. Paul says to the Ephesian church, don't get drunk with wine, which leads to reckless living, but be filled with the Spirit. Why does he use why did he use why does he use drunkenness and being filled with the Spirit together? Well, because you see the same thing in Acts 2. Because drunkenness has so many correlations to being filled with the Spirit. And I think the main correlations are this surrender and influence. When you drink, you are starting to surrender control to alcohol drunkenness is a full surrender of your control to alcohol and inviting the influence of alcohol on your actions your thoughts and your behavior 
When you're filled with the Spirit, you are surrendering your life to the Holy Spirit, and you are then acting under His influence in the rest of your life. It's very clear what the Bible calls us to. It says that, look, and, and this is not a sermon on drinking. The Bible says you can drink. The Bible says you shouldn't get drunk. So go and have some wine with lunch, whatever. It's not a sermon about drinking. The Bible says you can drink. The Bible says you shouldn't get drunk. The Bible says you should get filled with the Spirit. And you should surrender your life to the control of the Spirit and live under the influence of the Spirit. And that's what you see in the early church. You see a people surrendered to the person and the work of the Spirit and living under that influence. And the rest of the world and the course, follow me here, the course of human history changes. The course of human history changes because of these 120 people who are surrendered to the presence of the Holy Spirit and who live their lives under the influence of the Spirit. I I don't know where you are um, on, on your journey in faith or in your journey with the Holy Spirit. The last thing I'll say as we close here is that it appears to me when I study the book of Acts more and more I read this, that um, peop- the people who were filled with the Spirit knew they were filled with the Spirit. Okay? They, they knew. They weren't like, if you ask them a question, and you see that a couple of times, hey, have you received the Holy Spirit? The one group say, we don't even know there's the Holy Spirit. And they receive the Holy Spirit. And it says they receive the Holy Spirit. They ain't there, I'm speaking in tongues. But they receive. They have a time when they didn't receive and then a time when they did. And they knew that they knew if you ask them after that, yes, they've received the Spirit. I said earlier, there's no such thing as a Christian who doesn't have the Holy Spirit. But I think we live in an age now where you can be a believer and live with such little experience and, and, and receptivity and joy in the Holy Spirit that it's almost an unbiblical way to live. It's an unbi- No Christian should answer the question, if you ask them, have you received the Holy Spirit with the I don't know? Say that again. No Christian should answer the question, have you received the Holy Spirit with a, I don't know. Not sure. Maybe. The, what you see in the book of Acts is that the Holy Spirit comes upon people with such definitive presence and joy and force and power that you know that you have received the Spirit because you live a life that is surrendered to His influence and control. And He influences that you, the way that you see God, the way you see people, and the way you live on His mission. It's not like, a, I don't know, shrugging the shoulders. It's like, yes, there's a confidence. And you see in the book of Acts that people are asking again and again and again, and they are filled not once, they are filled again and again and again because they live in ongoing need of the Spirit's help and presence and influence to live as a missionary force for the kingdom of God. My summary of Pentecost is this. Those who believe all receive the helper from heaven who influences and empowers us to declare the magnificence of God to all the cultures of the world. I I want it to be our normative pattern as a church that every time we gather, every week we gather, this is how we respond. And we respond in waiting on God and we respond in longing for more of Him.
not because we're weird, charismatic, Pentecostal, and we want weird stuff to happen. We're not interested in the weirdness. We're interested in the wonder and in the power and the refreshing. And I'm interested in that you hit Monday morning as a missionary force. <laughs> Amen. Some of you are going to need the Holy Spirit in the coffee queue afterwards because you, someone's going to cut you off and you're going to need the Holy Spirit's grace to not think horrible things about them. We're, we're a people who live in massive need. There isn't a person in this room this morning who can get up and leave and say, it's cool. I heard what Doug said. I'm good for this week. There isn't a person here, guys. I'm the leader amongst us. I feel this more acutely than maybe most of us. I need the Holy Spirit. Not because I'm a preacher, not because I'm a pastor, but because I'm a believer. And because I read my Bible and that says to me, you live in ongoing need. And you have need this morning. You have need. I hope you have longing. Because God is so kind to match need with, and longing with presence. And so what we're going to do is we're going to respond. This is going to be our normative pattern week after week as we go through the book of Acts. We're going to have more worship at the end. We have maybe weird endings to services where it sort of ends but doesn't end and people who want to stay can stay. People who, who have to go or need to go or want to go can go. And that's okay. Because I don't want anyone living without the help and the presence and the power of the Spirit. And sometimes you may not feel that acutely or you may not have that and it's okay. It's not like we're demanding stuff of God every week. But I want us to grow in our expect, expectancy and our longing. Say, God, would you fill us? So, I'm tired of normal. I'm tired of weariness and dryness. I long for more. Long for more. I hope that's the cry of your heart. It's the longing of God. It's the longing of God to fill his people. And so we're going to worship now. We're going to pray. We're going to wait on God. And this would be my encouragement to you to pray. So God, would you fill me again? Like you filled them, would you fill me? Would you empower me? Would you, empower me? Would you make me bold? Would you make me a, a spirit-empowered missionary who declares the mysteries of God with confidence and boldness and authority and see, and see as you do? You're going to see this in the coming book weeks, the book of Acts. See, see, see you do amazing things because you've got power at work in my life and in this, in this.